Hey gamers, it is once again ad time. First, I'm going to plug myself. I have a Patreon now, and if you'd like to see this pod get bigger and better, I would deeply appreciate your support. Head on over to patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire to help out. Second, Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations is up to its usual awesome business. Their first game, Monumental Consequence, has arrived stateside, and you can still order it through their Kickstarter page. Rising Waters is undergoing a few tweaks, but will hit Kickstarter soon. And if you ever wanted a certificate in applied game design, CLGS is offering amazing classes online that will help you earn one. Up next is Lamaro Smith's Visual Storytelling, Game Art, Design, and Branding, which sounds absolutely amazing. It starts on October 11th, so make sure you sign up. And with that, it's time to start the show. Hey, gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I have a very special guest on the pod this week. I'm here with Dan Bullock. He's a designer of several different games, uh, but maybe you know him from No Motherland Without, which is about North Korea, or from 1979 Revolution in Iran. How are you doing, Dan? Great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. It's good to have you on here. So, um, yeah, I want to talk about your tendency to choose controversial game topics, but let's just start <laughs> with your game about North Korea. Sure. So, um, yeah. so I know that No Motherland of Doubt, that's your first published design. Is that correct? Yes. That was, that was the first, like, kind of um, big design in general. You know, usually you try to start. Well, I try to start with like a little project that I could actually see through all the way to the end, yeah. proof of concept and everything. Um, but yeah, no motherland without kind of a odd topic. I think for some people to pick is their first game they would want to do. Um, but I was pretty inspired by some of these like um, defector memoirs that I was reading and then kind of dug into more books about that conflict on the peninsula from basically the end of the Korean war to the present day which at the time was like 20 2017 and since then there's been like you know some interesting developments but yeah that was a subject matter i was really drawn to make a first game out out of that's awesome uh how long would you say that you spent researching the game so you started with some memoirs but then like where do you go after that i feel like north korea is a place we don't know that much about so how do you assemble good information about its basic game on so good information is an interesting <laughs> concept. Um, I So I spent two years researching for the game. I started with um, some books like, um, you know, there's uh, Salantai, uh, there's a Charles Armstrong book called Tyranny of the Week or Tyranny, I think it's Tyranny of the Week. And it was like basically kind of overview of kind of the ascension of the Kim regime and then like three generations of it but it really starts off its story focusing on kind of post-war reconstruction of like north korea to kind of set the stage for how uh kim il-sung like you know consolidates power behind him and everything but the book was actually like kind of plagiarized in portions from another author uh the last name is Zalantai. His first name I'm blanking on because I haven't read any of these books since <laughs> 2018. Um, but uh, Solante wrote like a book about it, um, about the same period. And basically like this, this very controversial book had like taken like excerpts from Solante's work and then changed them and tweaked them. Big no-no. But as a result of this um, terrible misdeed, I became aware of a bunch of other sources kind of in the periphery that he had taken from. And then I started reading these 
these other books. I was reading Zelantai's stuff. Um, Andre Lankov does like a lot of um, books on that topic as well. I would say in general, like there's a lot of really good sources about North Korea that are Chinese and Russian that you can find translated. There's a lot of observers on the peninsula, obviously, and are okay. You're trying to triangulate what doesn't seem like, what seems credible to the, <laughs> to paint a picture about what's going on in there. Um, I chatted with Volko Ronka about it because he was saying, he was like, how do you get good information about this topic? And, you know, we're kind of even seeing like in the age of open source intelligence and also with any kind of story, sometimes you're researching a topic for a game and you're looking to hear the same story be repeated, but like with little different, you know, different takes, like slightly different advantages on what's occurring. Uh, sort of like a, in a crime film, like when they're just interviewing witnesses to get an account of what happened, like not who's telling the truth. It's like, well, everyone's telling th what they've witnessed, but you have to kind of form this mosaic from the respective kind of testimony of these people. And that's definitely how you kind of have to approach North Korea. There's going to be little gaps and holes, but your research is really about just painting this picture and trying to make kind of a complete sense of it. I mean, it kind of sounds like a fun challenge, but you mentioned a bunch of the sources are Chinese and Russian. I'm sure they're not all translated. So I guess the other question is, to what extent did language barriers make it harder for you to get the info you wanted? Um, I think that the language barrier is probably less significant than all of the other barriers <laughs> <laughs> for North Korean. I think the other barriers are pretty, pretty severe for that, um, in part because... Uh, a lot of the information, you know, like when we're talking about like Russian sources or East German sources, stuff like that, like a lot of these authors have taken the time to translate this, this work. And, and that's essentially what I'm reading. And I think that with the South Korean, you know, observers on the peninsula, like there's just a lot of, a lot of play, like sources for being able to find information. I would say that you kind of have to weigh a lot of that information and see what seems credible to you, what, doesn't um and then definitely like i always have a um, emphasis on i i want things that are more recent I don't read a ton of you know sources like if i'm doing a story on you know or like a game on um you know north korea it's like i don't really need to read about something that's just basically it was published in 1960 like for the most part i'm really looking at more recent sources and kind of trying to see how it incorporates some of the other things that I've read and get a little bit of perspective on what everyday life is um, for North Koreans on the peninsula, but also just like kind of the history of our conflict, nuclear arms and their presence on the peninsula and all that jazz. So yeah, I, it is difficult though, for sure. Like there's a lot of barriers to that kind of a topic. And I think that there's an element for people who make historical games, they want a complete perfect picture and then I don't know that that exists for anything. I think you just want to do enough of the homework to feel like you are able to offer something in the game, like an insight that isn't out there in the, in the market, in the wilderness of games. So, so for people out there who have not played your game, uh, could you describe sort of mechanically what the core conflict and goals are for No Motherland Without? Because I do have some questions about how you set it up, but we should cover the basics first. Sure. So in No Motherland Without, it's a two-player card-driven game. Uh, has a very similar kind of event resolution to something like Twilight Struggle. Basically, I can use my cards to do actions and activities. 
Um, if it's my opponent's card, something bad is going to happen first. And then after that, I will try to repair the damage done or, you know, cause my own damage elsewhere. Um, one player plays the DR DPRK. And really what they are is they're kind of uh, playing the role of the Kim regime, right? They're going to mm -hmm. basically be trying to maintain their hold on power within the country. They are trying to keep their um, prestige from kind of falling through the floor uh, <laughs> because with things like pressure of say sanction regime and like maximum pressure, uh, economic pressures, there's um, things that would basically be leveraged against the regime to force them out of power through uh, diplomatic means and things like that. So they're basically trying to keep their prestige up. And sometimes that means repression of certain political dissidents within the country. Sometimes that'll mean things like saber rattling with launching <laughs> nuclear missile strikes and things like basically like ballistic missile tests and things like that to kind of try to relieve some of this um, sanction pressure. And they're building up infrastructure around the country in part to rebuild after the Korean War ends, but they're also doing that in part to support their overall nuclear program. And we have, there's like uh, also an element of, there's a standard of living that needs to be maintained on the board. And that's tied to the infrastructure as it exists on the map. So these are like the incentives for the North Korean player. And the way they're going to win is basically by staying in power until the end of the game and having a certain level of infrastructure if they haven't launched enough successful nuclear missile tests where right. they are basically kind of in power. And for the West, uh, their victory is kind of contingent on either being able to force the regime out of power by turning up the heat and make, maximizing that pressure, uh, curtailing the spread of infrastructure and the development there, and also kind of minimizing their... Uh, ballistic missile tests, their ability to uh, launch those tests. And at the same time, they're also trying to help with facilitating a pathway for defectors to get out of the country and political dissidents to become active within DPRK. So those are kind of like the competing incentives for that. And the West is like a stand-in for really is ROK and the US, mm -hmm. but those things are fairly lockstep when we're talking about kind of the the early era of the game. And then once kind of um, parallel to the Kim Jong-il era, you know, like basically when he succeeds his father um, as kind of the head of the regime, then we see kind of also a sea change in what the relationship is between that alliance between ROK and the US. And they diverge mm -hmm. a little bit more. They have a little bit conflicting uh, approaches to how they want to handle the you know questions of reunification and the korean question and they are even more divided now <laughs> than they were the day i finished that game like submitted so it's like uh, definitely the uh, strain of the the uh, trump presidency certainly put a new spin on that particular alliance um, which probably makes the game feel like a little bit more like it has an end point like not really mm -hmm. to present day but maybe it feels a little bit more like to 2015 or 2016 or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, so that's basically like the layout of what the game entails. Yeah. 
it makes sense that it would feel like it has a kind of point. That's one of the things that's weird about historical games that are recent, right? Is that when they finish recently and you just publish it, it feels like, oh yes, this is about yesterday. But then time starts to pass inevitably. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> what happened? Yeah, it's like a magazine in a waiting room, right? Like, it's just like, sometimes it's like, oh, this is like two years old. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you want to read this interview with uh, Kobe Bryant? This, this magazine's kind of old. <laughs> like, I'm very sorry. Like, it's just, things are not fresh. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I think that's tough, but also knowing kind of the gestation period for a lot of historical games, it sort of makes sense. So yeah, so I think it's really I, I want you to expand on talking about the West and how you meant to conceive it because I felt like when I played it, it really seemed like the United States felt like the primary stand-in for the West, and in my readings about North Korea I don't know and this may be the way that we present it in the states uh, but I always just sort of felt like North Korea it's like quit hitting yourself quit hitting yourself and then they're just like an intensely self-destructive regime for reasons that don't entirely make sense to somebody in the states and that we don't have to interfere that much for just bad stuff to happen over there but um it's I, I got a different impression from playing your game yeah I, I have a very different impression of what's going on there. I, I think that was a, a pretty big part of kind of like driving, like inspiring, like the game is that mm-hmm. when you view certain powers as like irrational actors um, and kind of take away some of like, you know, you eliminate their incentives from your, from your viewpoint of like what that conflict entails, it sort of creates this illusion. That there's nothing that can be done to ease tensions there's nothing to be done to address the conflict. You've just got this one irrational actor on the peninsula and they're just going to do that what they're going to do. I mean, they're like kind of wild. And I think that that's not entirely accurate. I, I was trying to portray that for DPRK, there's self-preservation of the regime is the motivating factor. So they're not going to do things that are going to lead to their own annihilation. And that um, there's also a kind of a different view of like how we we view or represent like the korean war here in the states like kind of our view of it how it's viewed in rok and then how it's viewed in the north and like so when it's a matter of trying to extend something like uh oh the un is offering like this kind of help or you know to come inspect these facilities you know for potential like negotiations over uranium origin or something like that it's like, well, we're technically still kind of at war with the UN, so we don't really want them <laughs> walking around here. And I don't think that's like a thing that like enters like most Americans' minds. Like they don't necessarily understand like what the terms of the armistice were, kind of what the tensions are there. But I did want to kind of have create at least a model where players could understand that there were incentive, like tangible incentives that were being satisfied by the regime trying to suppress like dissidents and it's a hold on to power where very few are exerting this control over every facet of life in North Korea and I think that that's what I want to portray and so that's part of probably why the Americans seem like they're at the forefront of the West portrayal because it's sort of a game for I think it's really oriented around kind of trying to teach Americans something about what's Mm -hmm. going on in North Korea, rather than presuming that I'm going to be teaching Koreans something about that's going on in Korea. That's not really the idea there, I think. Um, And I just wanted to kind of paint a portrait of how some of these things are interlinked and like Mm -hmm. why that might be there. But I think that for the ROK and like West, it's, it's a little 
um, you know, when we see something like sunshine policy, I know what, how Americans regard that type of approach to foreign policy. And we just think, oh, oh, they're just giving away stuff. They're giving away stuff to the North Koreans. That's, that's just bad. That's bad policy. <laughs> that's bad policy. It's like, there's, there's just like different approaches with successive, you know, like different, um, administrations and are okay have tried to approach Korea in different ways. Sometimes it's a hard line. Sometimes it's an olive branch. Sometimes it's about, Hey, can we form some sort of, you know, like, um, corporate partnership and like, you know, Kaesong like industrial, you know, park and like have like some means of like trying to form, um, you know, kind of shared ventures where we can actually have a positive influence on each other. And I think in the U.S., there's just a little bit more continuity across presidential administrations. And I think players would probably see over the game. There's a lot of us like not wanting to deal directly with with North Korea. There's no engagement post six party talks because it feels like it's a political loss to whoever tries to do it because you got your hands dirty or you got your hands slapped away because we weren't able to get them to, you know, completely disarm like and abandon all of their nuclear weapons. It's like, if that's right. your barometer for success, like, I don't know that you're, <laughs> you're really setting up uh, good faith, you know, in negotiations with anybody. So um, yeah, I think that's probably why it seems like more Western fronted, I would think. Mm-hmm. All right, I actually have two questions coming with this, but the first one I'm going to ask is what kind of feedback have you gotten about this game from players and especially from players who have different uh, cultural and historical perspectives? Yeah, I would say that um, I've probably gotten better reception from players who have reached out to me from South Korea than I would have expected on it. And most of the very negative stuff that I've gotten was from Americans who think that they knew that topic better is better because they were stationed in ROK or have, you know, followed like events on the peninsula, even though, even if they're not really observers of say what the status is of various human rights violations and like kind of the plight of North Korean people, um, but more about like the portrayal of the U.S. being, I guess, I don't know, I would say that they're indifferent, but basically like that they're somehow maximizing the damage of hardships, famines, things like that on the peninsula by withholding aid or, you know I mean? Like with the, basically the sanctions that are in place there, whether it's energy sanctions, you know what I mean? Or even just like humanitarian aid, food, what have you. Um, but I think that over the course of 70 years, there's definitely a record of those kinds of uh, constraints causing some suffering like on the peninsula and probably making people's lives in general harder. It's not that they don't do it without reason, but you kind of want to just show what has occurred. And I think that that's caused some, some people to feel rankled. And I think also if you make a game about Iran or uh, North Korea or something like that, um, I think the topics are going to be controversial to some folks. There's also a little bit of, you know, just like, why is this white guy making this game? <laughs> I was actually weird. about to ask you that. So why? <laughs> um, yes. No. So, I mean, the, the question yeah. is, so you're interested in North Korea and it is yeah. interesting. What makes you the right person to tell the story? Like you commented that you're not trying to teach South Koreans about this, but that mm. you maybe felt like you were in a position to talk to 
people in the West about it. So that's maybe part of your answer, but why are you the one? Well, I think that for me, it's just always, I don't really wait. A, there's a lot of waiting as a player for certain games to come out covering the subject matter you want to see made into a game or something where you think that, Hey, this would be really informative, um, you know, for players to kind of engage with. Um, but there's definitely games that tell stories that aren't my story to tell. And then there's going to be games where I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to try it like to hell with it. And maybe sometimes you're going to try it with a co-designer or consultants that you're going to check. Sometimes you feel safe in engaging with the sources that you have and you hope that that's going to be enough for at least you're going to have a very well-researched take and your vantage. But my vantage point isn't going to be the same as someone who's living on the peninsula. And if someone was living in South Korea, it's not going to be the same as the North Korean designers take on the same subject matter. And I want to play the North Koreans take on the subject matter. Like I want to see the grounds I view. It's going to be wildly different. And then I'll get to see everything that I got wrong is anyone who's watching what goes on in Korea from the outside looking in is going to be like, what part, what parts are we not getting? What aren't we seeing? What we do. But I think that to me, it's a little bit more of a, I know, and I'm going to tell you how it is and a little more of a DIY aesthetic of, I just don't want to wait for permission to make mm -hmm. art. And so to me, it's like, whether you're making a game about, North Korea, French resistance, you know, you're going to do your homework. You're going to do your research like a queer game, but like whatever you're making, it's like, I think that you're already going to have the barrier of trying to get a publisher to try to put forward some other story where maybe, maybe the American viewpoint doesn't worldview doesn't look so great. It's not going to really, um, come out totally, uh, un, unscuffed, unmarked and unscathed on the other end of people engaging with your design. Um, and I think that that's fine to want to want to see like, you know, quite a representation in, in the hobby and like see the designer who comes from that particular background making those types of games. But I don't, I just don't view it as being like a, a necessity for making a compelling game that touches on a topic in part, because I think also you're kind of opening the door for hopefully more games to talk about certain subject matter. Um, and whether it's North Korea specifically or human rights issues in general that don't directly affect things in our backyard. I think it's just like really important to start considering the different types of historical games we can make and how they'll touch on political things and, and other forms of history that aren't always very military centric. So, so I guess why me is because it's a thing I want to see developing in board game design that doesn't happen quite enough. Um, it's getting there. It's slowly opening up, but um, I mean, when I shopped no motherland around, it was like crickets trying to find somebody who wanted to touch that subject matter. And when I did find publishers who were interested, they're all war gaming publishers. And they're like, mm -hmm. could you make it a little more wargamey? <laughs> like, instead of being about, you know, like having the generation map, I had so many publishers who pointed out, it's like, I don't like seeing faces or I don't like this element of it, but that's where it connects with the humanity of the people impacted by both the Kim regime and by the kind of sanctions regime and maximum pressure and like everything that's, uh, you know, 
kind of being leveraged against the regime to force them out. And I was not willing to take that out because it's like the thing that like players really connected and engaged with. And that was like what a lot of people referred to as their favorite thing in the game. But yeah, I think if you're making a game and engages with the humanity of the people involved and you put them in the Mm -hmm. foreground of their own story, you just need to like do show that you're doing the work you're being sensitive and you're doing the research. And I think you're going to be in an okay place to like put that game out. Interesting. So um, let's talk about yet another controversial game. And uh, one that is so controversial that yet again, people who live there can't actually buy a physical copy. <laughs> um, so this would be Iran in 1979. So what inspired you to do this game? Uh, is it a true follow-up? Like, did you actually start designing earlier and you came back to it? And, you know, what's it, what's this one about? Jason Matthews thinks I'm doing an Axis of Evil trilogy, but I'm not, <laughs> not doing that. That was not my plan. Um, but, but it's not, um, it's not totally dissociated from that, I guess, because there's some of it. It's just like we're kind of taught in the United States that there's these countries that are just like opposed to our way of life. They hate democracy. They, you know, are colluding with terrorist elements in a weird worldwide network or cabal of like just people who want to do harm in the United States and just like, Oh, I want to investigate where, where the beginning of that kind of, you know, like attitudes sort of take shape and starts. Um, but really I was just always fascinated by the coup, uh, like operation Ajax in Iran and basically how it got treated as this blueprint for, um, American, like just, like kind of uh, overturning, like flipping democracies and like trying to reshape other countries to basically align them behind, you know, kind of U.S. policy at a given time. And so you see how it gets used in like, you know, Guatemala, all throughout Latin America and like other places. Um, But at the same time, we're heading into like the 2020 election and I'm, you know, in my house during a... uh, (laughs) pandemic and uh finishing up my stack of reading on iran and i was just like uh, i'm gonna make a game about how fragile democracy is and like i just want to kind of show um how influence could like kind of oscillate between you know various factions and how coalitions get formed and how they fall apart i thought that that'd be like really fascinating um but that's not the part that seems to be what bothers people is that you're making it about iran and that you're making a game where it's like no one's playing the U.S. or Britain. It's just groups of Iranians trying to shape, like control the fate of their own country and things like that. Uh, so, again, also not a thing that um, uh, publishers from the wargaming sphere were very psyched to like see a game about because it doesn't doesn't really, you know, there's like not like a thing like, is there a market for that kind of a game? I think the best you would get get would be like somebody would be like, you should really take this to GMT. They do these coin games. Have you ever heard of coin? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. I never thought of that. Thanks. Uh, and then, so yeah, it's just like interesting, like it, from the respect of just like, I I already wanted to see like kind of American interference with, with democracies and then how it played yeah. out over the course of decades kind of in this enclosed kind of scope of just Iran and how those, some of those same elements and forces based on our initial, you know, putting our thumb on the scales coalesce into the Islamic revolution. Um, but you're also motivating a player to try to uh, remove the Shah from power. So Khomeini can fill in the vacuum, which is not, 
it's an it's an interesting player choice like <laughs> people are not always going to be wild about like you know some of these victory conditions for for various powers but um i was very interested in like modeling that conflict mostly for trying to show like kind of how political influence is fluid and then also just again you're kind of making this game for americans somewhat to teach them a little bit about the basics of this conflict i think there's something to be learned for a lot of people but um i don't yeah i, I didn't see anything like that in the market i've been waiting for an iran game for for a long time so so you lost patience and made it i mean so, yeah I yeah i waited a good 10 years after 10 years you're still waiting for the game it's like uh, i think you might just need to like start doing the reading yourself and like kind of putting your back into it and doing the work so that's kind of how I, I approached it so you have played this game however with Iranians online mm -hmm. uh, yeah. so what kind of feedback did you get from the people who the game is like about it's um it's very interesting because it seemed as though, and I won't say general because they come from different educational backgrounds. You know, everything from like the hobby gamer who just is an omni gamer would probably, you know, they're like, Dan, it's, it's great, but I'd rather be playing like Blitzkrieg or you know, some like little, like, you know, I mean, like some other game. Uh, but they're like, this is really heavy and like kind of different. But it was interesting. Like, I think like a lot of them and felt that they were learning something more about the operation ajax part of it like the early era yeah. around the most sadeg about around most sadeg um but very different viewpoints of like what was kind of some of them wanted more drill down of like specific issues that were the reason for opposition to the shah for example and white revolution policies and things like that and uh not to bore your listeners with like all, all the all the the weeds of uh, Iranian politics, but basically it's just like that wasn't something I was as a non-Iranian person and not a Muslim was comfortable commenting on the specific grievances of Ulama in Iran in 1970s. Like I really just wanted to like kind of keep like more more basically like a, a panoramic view of what the political landscape looked like and specifically like the alignment of certain groups in mm -hmm. with their certain forces or in opposition to the Shah or with the Ayatollah. I didn't really want to get into like trying to state their cases because then it's like I'm advocating for these various different views. And that's it's just not my like I just don't have skin in the game really. It's more like I, I just wanted to kind of paint this overall picture about the kind of historical record and if there's any place where i felt fine getting my hands dirty it was when we were talking about british and american involvement with it because then i i felt like well this i i can i can show this you know what i mean like uh you know i think i think that as much as folks might have um the iranians that i played the game with which which isn't that many but it's still like a few and even like one of my colleagues here here in milwaukee it was just like even though it's like very few, there was still like a sense of, it wasn't so much nitpicking, like so, like their, their stuff is like a little bit like, you know, kind of nitpicking like specific tiny details, but the overall the crux of the game is like bookended by this coup and then the Islamic revolution. You get to see at the start how um, a lot of the, the coup is really being orchestrated from within like embassies and a network of assets 
around these embassies. And then at the end of the game, there's no question as to why, you know, 400 students climb the walls of the American embassy and take hostages. It's like, oh, well, this makes sense. And I think in a weird way, other games that I've seen kind of portray the Iranian hostage crisis, they just do that last part without really setting up how how we might have gotten there or what the significance of that event particularly meant, not just to the Iranians, but to the, you know, I mean, like to the Americans and the embassies and like what led to it. But I might just like to stir up trouble. I don't think that's what I'm doing, but. <laughs> um, well, I mean, aren't you also doing a game about uh, weapons contracts in Afghanistan? Yes, I am. I'm sure that'll have a much easier time getting published, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, that, that is that is the current project. Um, that's my little corner of the uh, U.S.-Afghan war that I wanted to portray in a game. Uh, it it has Euro mechanics. It's, it's very much a Euro game. Uh, folks are going to build an engine that does a certain thing and hopefully get to see it hum. Press your luck trying to um, minimize uh, the effects of impact of inspections on your work and avoid insurgent violence to try to make progress on projects, but all in pursuit of obligations, paid paid money from the US government for your contracts while getting awarded more contracts. So you're basically taking the role of a small firm and trying to make it a very big firm with some influence in Washington. But that's the, that's the game. Um, yeah, that, that is a project that I've been working on since January. It's been moving like really fast. And the it's always frustrating when you're pitching something and people are just sort of like, like they really don't <laughs> want to touch it. And then you'll run, like I was at WBC and I ran two demos of that game and it just killed. It just did so well. The groups loved it. And then you're like trying to pitch it to someone and they're like, I wouldn't touch this. <laughs> like, like, like with a 10 foot pole, like this game is just like, there's no way, like there's no way we're publishing it or, you know, uh, one company even asked me if they could retheme it about something else. And it's just like, could, could this could be about space or something you could do like, so I was like, no, I'm pretty, pretty married to the theme. You know what I mean, and they're like, but why? And it's just like, I just like making less money and making a point. <laughs> like, it seems more interesting to me. So. Dan, who makes no trouble at all. Yes. Yes. Uh, so no. I mean, I feel like this is a question you you probably get asked, but I'm just gonna ask it like, and I don't really I don't really know what your answer is, nor am I really worried about it. But I just I want to know, like, you know, we live in the United States, we are Americans. It seems like you want to make a lot of points about the U.S. that are disgruntled. Um, what are you working out for yourself through these games? Because I sort of feel like when we come back to topics again and again, it's about something that's bothering us and that we need to explore. So like, what keeps calling you? Uh, ignorance. I think that's an excellent question, by the way, but it's definitely like, there's just a blind spot. A lot of folks I know who design historical games, they have like an expertise. Like uh, if you've ever talked to Brian Train, it's like walking alongside high speed rail. Like he just knows all this stuff. Just Brian right Train. By. Brian Bullet Train. It's just like his expertise and everything. And then he'll be working on 10 concurrent projects and he knows everything about all of them all the time. It's just like, I'm like, just don't talk to me. I'm reading, right? Like I just have to keep everything somewhat siloed until the project's done. And for me, I always start a project with, um, I don't, I was never taught about that in school. And like, you know, I, 
I, after a bachelor's degree, I work in academia, but I'm not an academic. So for me, it's just my education's unending. I just, I'm going to be researching projects, you know, until I stop doing projects. So it's always like, I don't start with a thing I know about or even have, um, a lot of prejudices or like kind of assumptions. I just go in with questions and then just have to start cobbling together, you know, I mean, what, like basically finding out more about the conflict, how would I model it? Who's okay. Whose accounts are what? And like, that's, that's it. It's just like a, kind of like a journalist, but showing up to a thing that a bunch of people already know about, but I don't have this sense of, I need this narrative to get here to tell my story and angle it in this way. And so it's really easy to pursue North Korea from a point of ignorance because hopefully we all think we don't know that much about North Korea. That would be kind of ideal. And then you come out on the other side. And even if the game doesn't quite um, come together with as complete of a picture or all my questions don't get answered, I still know more two years later than I knew going in. There's a lot of elements of that rule book for No Motherland Without that I would like another shot at tweaking, but the research done in the last 12 pages is not one of them. That That's like, well, I'll die on that hill. Like that's totally fine, you know? And I think for Iran, it was the same thing. It's just like, I know what I was taught, which is basically nothing. So let's walk backwards <laughs> from that and read like, you know, these Iranian sources and like, you know, other sources about um, the nationalization movement, the influence of, you know, BP, AIOC oil, you know, like basically in the country. And then also like the Shah relationship with the US and the region. But you're just like cobbling together this story. And coming yeah. out of the Afghan war, it's a little different because like we were, we've been present for the last 20 years. We've been reading about it. But then I like to find the one thing that I don't know hardly anything about. And then just like, well, I want to make a game about this little piece, this tiny little corner, because this is what I don't know about. And then you spend two weeks reading through contracts and um special investigator audits and like what the outcome was of work that it was hiring it's like now i know more about that subject matter and i feel confident enough to like try to engage with a design but you always start out with a it's kind of a, i don't know like just it's a blind spot and that's why it, it might seem kind of cantankerous or like i don't know some people might pursue it like or perceive it as being anti-American, which I don't think it is. I think if you live in this country and you want the country to be a better country, you're, you're a freaking patriot. That, that's how this works. If you live in the country and you want to see it turn to, to just a smoldering pile, you're not a patriot. You're just, you just like, you just want to be comfortable. And it's all about facilitating your comfort or upending hierarchies that you don't think are very just and not advocating for people that you feel like are being wronged. That's it. It's pretty basic. I want to be smart where I'm dumb. I want to be better where I'm not. You know what I mean? Like, it's just continued improvement. So speaking about curiosity and wanting to know things we don't know, um, and maybe really being determined in your pursuit of that, can we talk about the Paganini game? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm very, of all the history, I'm probably passionate most about weird music history. And so... Um, uh, Will, William Heinrich uh, Ernst was a Moravian violinist and composer, a talented protege of Paganini's, or maybe he wanted to be a protege of Paganini's, uh, but he, he was platonic stalking uh, Paganini while he toured all over Europe. Paganini, if, you, if, if any listeners don't know, was just like an incredible composer, violinist. He's, he's like 
a showboat. He is a total freaking showboat. All fireworks all the time. So he'd like come up with a new technique. And the best way to show this technique off is to just like do it in the most ostentatious way possible in a piece that just highlights him doing these tricks. So, so our hero Ernst would follow Paganini from town to town. And then he would rent a room in a boarding house adjacent to Paganini's, put his ear to the wall and listen in on Paganini's practices, and then try to learn how to play Paganini pieces by ear through a wall. And Paganini was famous for not really liking to practice. And he also practiced with a mute because he just liked to surprise people. You know, you kind of go and you, you would shed it, right? And then you come out and you just surprise everything. Oh, it's like very impressive, you know? So... Um, apparently at one point, uh, what, during one of these tours, they were performing in Frankfurt and Paganini and Ernst ran into each other. Fancy that staying in the same boarding house and, um, Paganini, Paganini, yeah, Paganini offered to, uh, have Ernst perform with him, but like, just kind of, do you want to open my set? You want to play first? And Ernst, you know, delighted at the chance to play with his hero. So he, did, he did perform a few pieces before Paganini performed his concert. And one of the pieces he performed was a song called Moses Fantasy, which was an unpublished work that Paganini had been working on and he played it exactly. And then Paganini still had the gall to perform it anyway for his set because he felt, Paganini felt he did it better. So he wanted that. And then the audience couldn't really decide which one they liked better of these two dueling versions of Moses Fantasy. So that is so messed the, up. So just a historical question yeah. I have to know. Was that considered like a dick move? Oh, that is the, I would that, be so mad. Yeah. But like, how did Pagani how what do we know about what Paganini said or like how he reacted? Like, I need the tea on this. So so I don't really know in terms of the reaction. I think we can kind of guess what the reaction is because this is taboo yeah. no matter what century you do it in. <laughs> like it's super <laughs> rude to like steal people's unpublished work and then perform it like in front of them but then to do it in a venue where you could be seen doing it you can also see like the kind of to me it's like just such a weird it's you such can a tell turn from, in the punch bowl just you yeah you can tell that Ernst the gears turning in Ernst's head are probably that he has done something very impressive and that he has somehow won Paganini's respect by doing this despite the fact that this is the same lack of like kind of social graces that would cause one to stalk their hero all over Europe, rent adjacent rooms to where they are staying, listen in and eavesdrop on their practices, cobble together an unpublished piece, but then to perform it in front of them and their audience, just like, oh, look what I did, like with beaming with pride. It's just like, you know, Paganini thought he was like the like alpha creep, like just like <laughs> the worst probably after that. There's no way you'd be okay with that. So in no. the game, you're you're literally following <laughs> Paganini from town to town, and there are these cards that represent the walls of your of, of your of your boarding house room, and they have excerpts from the Moses fantasy piece, and then a QR code linked to a segment of the violin music that you would like hear through the wall if you hear anything. And so you scan it with your phone if you want to hear the piece. Otherwise, you just see what music is revealed, and you're trying to complete the piece. It's a set collection game like about just cobbling <laughs> together this musical piece and you need to have it all together before you get to Frankfurt because you, you really want to show Paganini what you put together. Um, and uh, Sideroom Games had a 50 card, like a 52 card design contest like a couple years ago. 
And I was like thinking, oh, I, I think I'd like to do that. I like, you know, like Maquis and I uh, Black Sonata and some of their games. I was like, I wonder what I would do for that contest. And I went to lunch when I was at work and I thought up the entire game. Like I had the whole game just written out on a piece of paper and then to like came home just like 48 hours. And I told like <laughs> one of my friends, he's like a fellow designer about it. And um, I was just telling him that I made this game. He was, you really felt you had to sprint to get that one down before anyone else took it from you, didn't you? <laughs> It's like, so but they might have heard you playing it through the wall. Yeah, right. Something like that. So just shots fired. But yeah, so I submitted that for the contest to probably a lot of furrowed brows or whatnot. But those are the types of things that like just I I love the idea of like that story. And it felt like it needed to be embodied in the game. And one of the cool things about solitaire games in general is you can just do that for people you can really take people for this like kind of on this kind of weird adventure like now we liz we both know stalking's wrong right but in this one case i'm gonna need you to stalk this guy for like a little bit because we're gonna learn this violin piece you're like okay okay i guess i could see that but hey okay if i recall correctly isn't it true that franz list was such like a hottie and a superstar that women used to follow him around and try to get his gloves and try to get like the leftovers of his coffee yes like you can no. have a follow-up set collection game trying to get like list souvenirs <laughs> oh, oh i'm feeling this is... this is not good no this is good like i feel like i'm making yeah, I've moved on. I'm not, now I'm just designing games for the New Yorker. Like I'm just like making like the weird esoteric crap that no one else would want to play. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I think it was also kind of uh, when I was working on the Ernst game. Uh, Naomi Clark had a game called Consentical that came out like a Kickstarter, yeah. and it was this brilliant piece of art about like basically how we talk about consent like when when folks are approaching intimacy and the rub for the game is that it's like a two-player co-op but it's harder the less you communicate and you're like yeah like that that's brilliant right and then I was like thinking like okay and then I love that I was so moved by that game it's like well now I'm gonna make a game about platonic stalking but what will my subject matter be (laughs) um so in a roundabout way this my game was I guess Naomi Clark's fault like I was inspired by (laughs) by by her being thought that was good inspired by a game about consent and mutual enjoyment to create a game about the opposite about the opposite (laughs) well let's make the opposite yeah no that's that's very natural for me I'm gonna do the opposite thing we'll go the other way That is hilarious. I gotta play this Pagnini game at some point. But um, so I, I've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate you like coming on the show. So we'll do some wind down. What games have you been playing for fun recently? Uh games I've been playing for fun. Uh, last last couple of days I've been playing Sniper Elite because I just got that. Um Crescent Moon has been great. It's getting a little bit of a bad rap right now on BGG, I'm noticing, but at five players. Mm, I love the engagement. And I think a lot of that game has, is fueled by people's willingness to negotiate and talk at the table. Uh, I never like where my situation is as a player. So I'm always willing to chat and try to improve it. <laughs> I think other people are very, very like safe in there. Uh, I think I've got a good strategy. I think they have. But uh, so Crescent Moon's been excellent. I like Sniper Elite a lot because normally in these kind of hidden movement games, both sides don't have interesting choices. Sometimes one person gets to like, you're Jack the Ripper and you get to snicker for 15 seconds. Well, then everyone moves for five minutes and deliberates about what you're doing. And like Sniper Elite was very much like a, we both have 
interesting things um, to do. So those, those have been the two big ones um, recently. And then tried like a handful of games at WBC. Uh, tried Nicaea for the first time and played that thing outpost eight player game which I was terrible at. I'm just not good at lying to a group of people. I think that is not my skill set. Uh, if I was, I guess I could be in office or something, but I'm just not, not well suited to it at the game table. Everyone knows me too well. They see me changing colors and not talking for like 30 minutes. It's just like the jig is up. I'm not getting on this helicopter. So I'm also a terrible liar if it's any comfort. We just have too much integrity, Liz. That kind of game is beneath us, ultimately. That's what it is. That must be it. I'm just, it's, it can't possibly be that I'm socially awkward and not smooth at all. No, it's like, no. This, it's the game. It's the game's fault, for sure. Um, clearly. Yeah. Clearly. <laughs> all right, so if people want to talk to you online, ask you questions about your game, see what designs are coming up, uh, where can they find you online? Um, always respond to rule questions on uh, BGG. And uh, I usually put up uh, rule videos for my games so folks can consult those. Though uh, Joe Beyer has a what will this piece, what does this piece do series where he's been like kind of breaking down the history of games and like how to play them. His video is way better than mine and it just went up this week. So if you're having any issues trying to learn 1979, definitely check that video out. And then I'm always on Twitter, like to the point where it bothers my wife. So definitely. <laughs> get a hold of me uh you just follow me on twitter or uh dm me um uh, answer like design questions real questions there too so parents would have had a better life if there had been just twitter <laughs> indeed <laughs> right uh for sure it's like an interesting place where uh you can start a really good conversation and then watch it fall into the absolute morass <laughs> like afterward <laughs> Oh, and I'm there for both. I like both. <laughs> so if y'all want to find me online anywhere, I'm all, all over the places beyond solitaire. I prefer to stay out of the morass, but I guess we can have a ride sometime. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming on, Dan. This has been a blast talking to you. Thanks for um, having me, Liz. <laughs> uh, those of you who are out there, please like, comment, subscribe, and most of all, happy gaming. <laughs>